Father God, You're amazing. You're beautiful. And Lord, whatever season of life that we are in right this minute in this place, we know that You are with us in that season. We may not feel You sense that You're with us, but no matter how dark, Your light is still there to guide us. No matter how bright and bountiful, it is You, Lord, who give us the harvest. So, Lord, whatever season we're in, may we worship You. Always, with all of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Do you ever feel like the circumstances of your life rule your life? Do you ever think that maybe if you just had that golden opportunity, if the boss would just notice you, if maybe you could get the capital money to, to start that business, to launch that idea into something that would be something great and make a name for, for yourself and maybe make a, a fortune for you? Do you ever feel like maybe you're micromanaged? That somebody's controlling every move and that if the person in front of you would just understand your passion and your vision, that you could get past that? You know, most of us, many times, most of us are not born into perfect circumstances. We're not born with a silver spoon. We're not born uh, child prodigies. We're not, we don't grow up and, and get Ivy League full-paid scholarships. We don't enter into jobs with a promise of VP relations or opportunities within the first couple of years of being in there. We're not giving those opportunities. Sometimes we feel as if our, we have all these great ideas and dreams and possibilities inside of us, but because of our circumstances... Because of the season of life that we're in, we feel like an absolute ball and chain kind of life. And that's never fun to be in. If I can tell a story today based on the movie Slumdog Millionaire, I think it was probably one of the most inspiring movies that I have seen in this past year. But it's interesting just to even know how the movie was, was where it was filmed and all that kind of, because Bollywood or, or, or modern day Hollywood of, uh, uh, over in India, they actually make more movies in Mumbai than they do in Hollywood in a year. I didn't realize that until getting into this, but there's a lot of movies that are made internationally and many are made in Mumbai more than even they, to the point that they call it Bollywood. But as, as you think about the storyline uh, of this movie that receives eight Academy Awards, that receives, uh, it wasn't just its cinematography, it just was its, its music, and it wasn't just its story, it, it was an amazing story that un, unfolded there of somebody who's in abject poverty, living in the slums, living in the pit of despair, way, way, way below any level of, of, of in, in India it's truly a caste system, that, that there's no way that this person could ever rise above that. The story is of Jamal and his brother uh, Salem, who is, uh, uh, they're both Muslim brothers, and, and uh, it, through the process they, he, they, they fall in love with, or through this process of growing up, uh, they, they, uh, Jamal falls in love with uh, 
is it Lasika? I can't remember. I just lost her name for just a moment. But anyway, they, they, they just kind of grow up together in all of their abject poverty. And again, if you look in the, in the caste system of, 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 of India and Hinduism and so forth, there's no way that they're going to make it out of that. They are, they are destined to a life of horrible circumstances. But the story goes on and he becomes a millionaire. How does a person go from, from abject poverty, from the pit of despair, from nastiness and filth to a millionaire? I mean, is that just, again, just one of those Hollywood feel-good kind of movies? Is it really even possible to learn any lessons from people like that? Take your Bible, we'll be finding the book of Genesis again, Genesis chapter 37. Because immediately when I'm thinking of sinister brother, uh, I'm thinking uh, not of my own brothers, but uh, I'm thinking of a man named Joseph. And how Joseph at one time found himself in the pit. Now, I don't know that it was as descriptive and smelly as the the pit that Jamal found himself in. But there's tremendous parallel whenever you look at the life of Joseph. And again, looking at your life, your life, when you look at your circumstances that are weighting you down, holding you back, keeping you from moving forward, you would say, well, they're not near as bad as Jamal's. But if Jamal can make it, and this is a Bollywood story, if I can. But I think we can look at the biblical story of Joseph, who has all of his brothers fighting against him, who can't stand him. Yet dad loves him. And in the midst of this love-hate thing going on inside the family, they absolutely develop nicknames for him. They can't stand him. He's just kind of like, they, they want to get rid of him. They want to move him off the scene. And so in this process, they put him in a pit. And so if you have your Bibles in, in Genesis chapter 37, verse 3, let's just catch you. I'm going to just, I mean, there's so many verse chapters here of Joseph's life, and we're just going to hit some of the verses. So this will just whet your appetite to go back and to study uh, Joseph's life as he, as he develops here. But verse 3 says this, and, and Israel, who was his father, renamed Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob is, uh, is the dad here and renamed Israel. And now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons. Because he was a son of his old age, and he made him a varied color tunic. Now, we've all heard Joseph's coat of many colors. There it is. Now, if you go, if you go on down in verse 5, though, you can see how uh, this kind of sets in with the brothers. The brothers, and Joseph had a dream, and when he told his brothers, they hated him even more. So there was already a level of hate that was going on. But a level of hate that continued to increase. Now, if you think about it for just a moment, is there anybody in your life that you hate, that you can't stand? And the more you're around them or the more you see the effects of their life or the results or the successes or failures or whatever, the more and more the hatred is even growing. My friend, you've got to get a control on that. That will control you in time. But it just shows you that hatred can grow. But it keeps on growing because in verse 8, And the brothers said to him, Are you actually going to reign over us? Again, this is the younger brother speaking of the older brothers. He says, Are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more. Again, the hatred is growing. 
And now they had still another dream. Uh, uh, anyway, you can just see here as he continues to progress uh, in, his, in his life that they continue to hate him. Now down to verse 11. His brothers were jealous of him, uh, uh, of him, but his father kept on saying in his mind. So here it is. You have jealousy. You have anger. You have this kind of bitter relationship going on between the brothers. Now, in this process, the brothers go off to take care of the, the sheep, the herds, the cattle, the, 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 the prophets, if you will, of the family. Joseph stays behind. Joseph is then sent by dad, Jacob, on to find his brothers and to find out how things are going. Well, they've kind of progressed in their journey, and they've made it down to Dotham. And as they're down in Dotham, they're, 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 they're looking on the horizon, and, and, and they, they see Joseph coming. Now, again, hatred is reigning. And growing, and jealousy is, abounds in the family. And so, in the process of him coming down there, they began to scheme against him. They began to plan that they're going to, to, to take him and kill him, and they're going to come back to dad with an excuse for his death. Well, Reuben, the oldest brother, steps up and says, No, no, we can't do that. We can't do that. We're going to instead, we're going to put him in a pit. Now, I don't know what was merciful and what was not merciful in this scenario because to die or to die in the desert in a pit, I don't know which is merciful. Now, have your brothers whack you or what? I don't know. This is, this is sibling rivalry at a new level. But, but as, as they go through this process, Reuben talks them into at least putting him in a pit. And as they put him into the pit, they, this is, a, by the way, a very common holding uh, a detention kind of place for, for criminals to put them in, down into a pit. Put them into a pit. Jeremiah even went into the pit and was left to die at one time. And think about it for just a moment. Joseph was a person who grew up with a tremendous amount of love from his father. He's only doing what his father says to do. And we're going to get to a moment into some dreams that he had. He even became called the dreamer among the brothers. And I don't think it was in a flattery kind of way. But he finds himself one day, as he's doing what his dad has told him to do, when he comes upon his brothers whom he, we have no indication that he didn't love them. And he finds himself staring at the four walls of a pit. Now I want you to hang on to that just imagery for just a moment, would you? And I want you to ask yourself the question, what are you thinking when you're looking at four walls of a pit? What is your dream like? What are your fantasies? Where are you thinking you're going to end up in life when your brothers are telling you you're going to die and they're going to leave you in Dothan in a pit? At that point, you have to understand his life stinks. His life is horrible. His circumstances are, are, are unfathomable. But then again, Reuben, to the Savior, to the rescue, comes up with a better idea. Let's just sell him. Excuse me, Reuben, put him in the pit. But the brothers saw some Mennonites coming, and the Midianites coming. And as they, as they were coming up on, on the scene, the Ishmaelites and the Midianites were coming up on the scene. They decided instead, let's not kill him, let's sell him. So he went from being a brother to a commodity, from a son to a slave, from walking above the ground to living below the ground. All in a matter of moments. His circumstance stunk. So as he's in this situation now, his brother's selling him into slavery. 
And again, we don't know exactly who came first, the Ishmaelites or the Midianites. But anyway, it ends up saying at the end of this chapter that they end up selling him, the Ishmaelites sell him into Egyptian slavery. So here we have him being passed down as, as a commodity. Being passed down from, from one place to the next to the next. And truly I would have to say, he is living a horrible life. But the thing about Joseph is, if you know the end of the story, and I don't have time to tell you the whole story, I'll only give you a picture of it today, is that he does move beyond that. He does move beyond that, and he ends up living in the palace of Pharaoh. He ends up becoming one of the most prized individuals in Pharaoh's court. He's, he's the most trusted individual. He literally, because of his leadership, ends up saving that nation and the nation of Israel. And again, I have not enough time to go into that story. But how is it? This is the question that I think we need to be asking. How is it that a person can be in the pit of despair and end up in the palace? Now, what this message is not, it's not a prescriptive message. Genesis does not give it to us in a prescriptive fashion. That if you are in a pit, if you will do A, B, C, and D, then you will be able to get out of the pit and end up in the palace. It is, however, descriptive. It does give us a good picture, a good snapshots into the life of Joseph of some elements that I think that we can draw in so that whenever all we are seeing all the way around us are four walls of despair, of depression, of difficulty, of stench, that there may still be hope. And the very first thing I think we need to launch into and understand and learn is lessons from him. How did he go from the pit to the palace, from the mess to the mosaic, from the, from the lemon to the lemonade? We find it here in Genesis. Here's the very first thing I want you to jot down, is that your destiny is something you pursue, not something you manipulate. Again, I want us to understand that a destiny says something. The destiny says something that about you and about me, that there is something bigger more powerful, more sovereign out there that is helping to make up and orchestrate our life. And that it's not my goal in life to make my life's plan and to live by my plan and to do my plan. It is not my goal and ambition in life to manipulate my life through my, through my dreams. But it is to find my destiny. And to understand that God has a destiny for each one of us. And to me, that is far more beautiful than me coming up with my plan. Because with my limited knowledge and my limited scope on life, then what happens if I come over here and I master plan my, my life and I, and I get it all laid out how I want it to be and, and maybe it works somewhat the way I want it to be and, and, and I get it somewhat the way I want it. It, it's, it could be a pretty good life. But oh, how much more beautiful to think that the, the infinite God of all the universe actually has a master plan for me. And that in that master plan, if I get into His plan, I am actually living out a destiny that He has designed for me. That is far more beautiful than the life that I could dream up in the best of circumstances with my limited knowledge. I want you to read this verse out loud with me. Just actually, just one part of the verse. Jeremiah is one of, probably one of 
people's favorite verses is in Jeremiah. I think it's going to appear on the screen. There, there it is. I know, read it out loud with me. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity. To give you a future and a hope. Read that first phrase up to the first parentheses, or up to the first comma there. For I know the plans I have for you. Say it again. For I know the plans I have for you. A little louder. For I know the plans I have for you. Now, if you don't read any of the rest of that verse and you don't read anything else to know and to rest in the fact that God has a dream, that God has a plan, that God has a destiny. I ought to get you up in the morning and say, God, here I am. What's the plan? I'm in on it, God. I have a plan. You have a plan. I want to get on on your plan. Psalm 23, verse 1 says, The Lord is my shepherd. That implies the idea that there is a relationship going on. I shall not want. If you understand this story here, again, everything in Joseph's life, circumstantially, outside of his dad, said, you will fail. In the system in which he was being born, he was born into, he was the youngest child. He was that baby, that runt of the litter, but yet he was favored by his father. Well, in everything in that culture, it starts at the top and it works its way down. It doesn't start at the bottom and work its way up. So Reuben should have been the most favored son. He should have been the one to receive most of the inheritance. He was the one who should get most of the fame and most of the fortune. But no, somehow in God's destiny plan, he had a greater plan for Joseph. And as he's raising up Joseph here, his brothers are doing everything in their power to push him down. Joseph is a dreamer. He's a person of great vision. He's a person that God speaks to in dreams. Now, God is still speaking to us today. He speaks to us through His Word. He speaks to us through His Holy Spirit. He speaks to us through a godly messenger. He speaks to us through godly friends. He speaks to us through our circumstances. He speaks to us in ideas and visions and dreams. He's still speaking to us. Now, I will say this, that every time He speaks to us, it's always under the litmus test of His Word. It's never contrary to His Word. But here you look in, 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 there was no word at that time. Obviously when Joseph is writing the very first book here is what's going on, is unfolding here. But look at verse 9. And he had still another dream. He was a dreamer again. And he related it to his brothers. And he said, Lo, I I have had still another dream. And behold, this is the dream. The sun and the moon and 11 stars are bowing down to me. Now, I don't know what else he said, if that's all he said, but he got the dream and his brothers got the dream. And so his brothers launch into him and they say, what do you mean we're going to bow down to you someday? That we're going we're gonna to bow down to you as if you are, are going to be some superpower? Well, again, if you know the rest of the story as I do and as you can know, is that Joseph ends up becoming the person that they bow down to to save the nation of Israel. Now think about this for just, a, for just a minute. Way many years early in his life, God is giving Joseph a dream, a destiny, a calling for his life. Year 
years, 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 years later, it becomes a reality after pits, after slavery, after misunderstandings, after many trials and circumstances beyond. But there was a dream, there was a destiny that was given to him that the moon and the sun, which would be his father and his mother, and ten people would bow down to him. And those would be his brothers. And in this story, it's an amazing story because that ends up being the reality. My friends, when we live not in our circumstances, but when we live in our destiny, when we live in God's destiny for us, when we live in God's plan for us, we are living a beautiful story that may have many trials and many pits and many four walls that we will be looking at. But in the end, it is God's destiny for us. Erwin McManus said it like this in the barbarian way. He said, we have to learn how to see the invisible and hear the inaudible. I love that statement. You'll hear it again next week. We are called to join the barbarian tribe and to embrace our call as mystical warriors. Although you can learn important things about God from others, in the end, to know the barbarian way, you must receive the instructions from God Himself. If this isn't enough to drive you crazy, I don't know what is. There's a level of insanity that comes with the barbarian way. See, Joseph was given a dream that was almost crazy, insane, but it was his destiny. And in that destiny, he didn't. His brothers tried to manipulate it, his brothers tried to control it, his brothers tried to stop it. But he continued to live it. He continued to live it until it became a real. The barbarian way for us is an absolute self-surrender to God's ultimate destiny for our life. Are you willing to take your plan and put it on the table and sacrifice it right here, right now, and say, I've been living my plan long enough. And I don't know how radical or how many four walls and pits and despairs I will find myself in. But I am tired of living my plan and I'm ready to live God's plan. I'm ready to live out His destiny. His destiny. I have a plan for you. In this movie, one of the powerful things, and Chuck Colson actually brings this, brought this out to my awareness. He said that this movie is a beautiful picture in the midst of this existential worldview that claims that we can go into life and make up our own plans. I wonder if you're living your life as if you're writing your own story. Or are you living your life as if your story has been written? It is written. It is a destiny. When, when God in the 10th grade, actually I was in, going into the 11th grade, began to call me to a life of ministry, to a life of vocational ministry, it was not on my chart. And I've said this many times to you before. But I really believe after 20-something years of doing what I've done here and around the world, I know that I'm living his destiny. Did I know the who, what, when, where, and how in that moment? In, in the 11th grade? Not at all. 
But I began to live that day off of my plan and get on God's plan. There's a second part of the journey that we need to understand about life and that I think the movie teaches us, but also it's a lesson that Joseph teaches us, is that your purity is something you protect. It's not something you compromise. Joseph was an amazing individual, again, not only in his perseverance, but if you skip over to verse uh, chapter 39, we find that Joseph was a person who had made it now quite successful. He had climbed out of the pit, he had climbed out of, uh, out of slavery, and he had climbed into a position of great influence. In verse 2 it says, The Lord was with Joseph so that he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And now his master saw the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that, he had, all that he did to prosper in his hands. So Joseph, in the midst of this horrible circumstances, comes through this and he actually puts him in charge of his house, taking care of all the affairs of his house. And Potiphar goes on and does his life and lives his life. And in the midst of that, Joseph catches the eye and the heart Catches the eye and the heart of Potiphar's wife. And I don't know that I have enough time to read you all the text, and, but I just want to hit some of them. If you'll skip down to verse 6, the last part of verse 6, he says, Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Now that can work, I guess, for you or against you. But in this case, Potiphar's wife was infatuated with this stud. All right, verse 7, it came about that in these events that the master's wife looked with desire at Joseph and she said, lie with me, but he refused. And the story goes on, and I'll summarize it to say that it goes on that she continues to proposition him, continues to invite him. But there's one thing about it, that as you're going to live out God's destiny, let me just say this across the board to all of us. Satan is not going to let you live out that destiny without roadblocks, without detours, without many opportunities to get off course. And here's an opportunity in Joseph's life to get off course. When here's a woman who had to be a beautiful woman because a Pharaoh could have any woman in the kingdom... And here's Joseph, a handsome man who could easily be with this woman and nobody know about it. He rules the house. But there was something about it. He was not going to compromise in this area. And he holds up to his commitment to that. And he says no. Well, she, she doesn't accept it. She doesn't, she doesn't like it at all. In fact, she goes on and throws herself at him. Throws herself at him to the point that he has to run out. But I want, to, I want to say to you today, I love a man who has the stamina, who has the commitment to maintain his purity on a very thing that seems very human, the very natural to just go into it. I've in recent days actually been challenged and called judgmental and called um, old-fashioned and called um, out-of-date and unrealistic. Because as, and I'll just leave it in a basic general way, because I have told a couple that they could not be a member of our church uh, until they stopped living together and sleeping together. 
And uh, now, am I going to go in and check their bed? No. But I made a statement that it was very clear, it was very open, and open, deliberate, unrepented of, no plans to change. I said, you can't do that. There's a standard that God has for us. And I said, if you will change, you can be a member. We have no expectations of our tenders. But to be a covenant member, you've got to make a stand that we are going to live righteously. And I've received some, quite a bit of flack from that. But I just want to say that to you, not in the sense of a judgmental way. I just want to hold to God's highest standard. Listen, what Joseph does here is, is completely unnatural. Because the very natural thing is to just go and live and let live and, and live like wild animals. Well, the problem is, is that God holds us accountable. God holds us accountable. And in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, He says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. Even in this movie, Jamal and, and Lasika. Jamal is so committed to her that even given the opportunities that he could have had, and you'll have to watch the movie to see those, he does not lean his eye and turn his eye to her. When he is even with her alone, and she has been sold and rescued from child prostitution, he does not, he does not give himself over to her. And it's actually, again, Chuck... Colson brought this point out that in most movies in Hollywood, you would see more of the ranch. But what we saw in this movie was somebody saying, no, it's not right. Waits to the very end. The only time you see Jamal kissing Lasika is at the very end of the movie. What a beautiful picture of waiting. What a beautiful picture of being committed to being faithful. If you look back at Joseph's life real quickly, how do you live in this world with all this sexual tension out there? I want you to notice two words I want you to put in your notes. One is the word resist. You are going to have to learn this word. Even though, even though Potiphar's wife was throwing herself, completely inviting Joseph in, it says in verse 8, he refused. He refused. This is something inside of us on our spiritual journey and the destiny that God calls us to is that we will have to guard our purity in our life. The Bible says in James 4, 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. But the second thing, and I want to close with this, is you will also have to learn to run at times. Because not only did, did Joseph have to resist, but when she became aggressive towards him... He had to learn to run. And in verse 12 it says, She caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. The Bible tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, it says, Flee youthful lust. Flee youthful lust. There will be many detours in your life. Many opportunities to go off track. My challenge to you today is to resist and to run if you need be. But stay on His destiny for your life. Because for some of you today, you may be looking at the four walls of despair. Or you may be living in the palace of your life. Think about it. Where are you? Are you in the four walls of despair, living in a pit? 
or are you living in the palace of your life? Well, here's the question I have for you. Are you living God's destiny for your life? The plan that He has for you, are you living that out? Are you keeping yourself pure, right, and set apart for Him? Because there will be many things that will call at you to come aside and to get off course. But is there anything in your life that's holding on to you and pulling you back? Father God, we bow before you now and we thank you for these moments to look at a story. A story of a man named Joseph who lived a hard life, who ended up living a beautiful life. Not because simply, Lord, he was living in a palace, but because he was living out your destiny. So, Lord, wherever and whatever we are, if we're in the pit of despair or we're living in the palace and the pleasures of life, may we ask that question, are we living out your plan for our life? And if we're not, Lord, help us today, right here, right now, to get on track with you. If there's anything impure, unright, unclean in our life, Lord, help us to fight it, to resist it, to run from it, no matter how inviting the invitation may be. Lord, we thank you for these moments. We ask your blessings on them in Jesus' name.